You might have noticed that Microsoft is changing its views on open source. We've gotten from using dozens of pieces of open source a few years ago to literally using hundreds of thousands of different things across millions of different usage points within the company. Just because you're using something that has a vulnerability doesn't mean you're actually subject to that vulnerability. You typically have to use it in a vulnerable way. What's really interesting is to sort of look and say, well, what better assessment information can we have? Like, how can I tell as a user if I am vulnerable? What are the characteristic usages that are vulnerable? Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. It is a part of the Secure Developer community. Check out thesecuredeveloper.com for great talks and content about developer security and to ask questions and share your knowledge. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Today, I have Jeff McCaffer from uh, Microsoft with me on the show. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Sure. So, Jeff, uh, before we dig in, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, What do you do? Uh, a little bit sure. of history of how you got there. Yeah, so my role at Microsoft is I run the Open Source Programs Office. So we help drive policy and process and tools and the culture change across the company. You know, you might have noticed that Microsoft is changing its views yeah, on open source. Bit, you know. And so we try to help mature our, our viewpoints on open source and uh, make the practices really easy and smooth. Because there's, there's a lot to do when you're using open source. It's not free, right? Like yeah. it's, you've got to do work to, to do it well. And both are releasing and are consuming of open source. So that's what I've been doing for the last four years or so. And historically, I did a bunch of stuff in open source. I was one of the original guys on Eclipse and mm. did a bunch of work in that space and uh, spent some other time at, at Microsoft doing a few different things. But uh, yeah, that's been my recent past has all been driving the open source program. Does that qualify as going to the dark side, going from like, yeah. doing open well, source was, to like uh, managing open source? I, I used to work for, for IBM doing Eclipse work. And then, uh, of course, when I ended up leaving and, and uh, joining Microsoft, because this was like seven years ago, right? So that was the dark ages you know, for, yeah, for Microsoft like pre, and open source. So, Microsoft culture shift. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a, a, an interesting change, but it's a super exciting place to be right now uh, yeah. with all the changes. There's a lot of stuff happening and a lot of evolution happening right now. So. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Cool, okay, so that's cool. And what you do today is you manage these open source uh, programs inside of it. Maybe let's double click a little bit on, on like how, how does, well, well, that's a Microsoft analogy there. Uh, <laughs> you know, into, uh, uh, into, you know, what does that mean? You know, like, do you have, a, sure. you have a team there? How does that work, like managing? Yeah, so we've got a, you know, a, a modest sized team, about a dozen people who, that are in my team directly. And, mm -hmm. and we do everything from like looking through the legal policies. You know, when we started this office uh, a few years ago, you know, a developer at Microsoft had to answer like 20 skill testing questions if they wanted to use a piece of open source. And it was really prohibitive, right? And so we went through and with our legal partners, reviewed everything, all the policies and, and whatnot, and, and just trimmed that down. And, you know, to make a long story short, we've gotten from using dozens of pieces of open source a few years ago to literally using hundreds of thousands of different things across millions of different usage points within the company. And we have to track all of that and, and understand all the license compliance issues comply with all the licenses, understand all the vulnerabilities and try to make our devs aware of that and you know, track where they've gone and everything like that. 
So that's one of the big challenges we've been facing in the last few years. And we do that in partnership with the security team, the legal team, and, and the product teams across the company. So what does it look like today if a developer wants to consume a piece of open source right. in, uh, in Microsoft? What happens? We have streamlined that to the extreme. And we have, our mantra is eliminate, automate, delegate. So first we eliminate any policies or questions or friction that we can find if we can work really hard to understand exactly what's the risks or what are the opportunities and the trade-offs. And if we can eliminate any of the challenges there, we, we just get rid of it. And we write policies now that are highly automatable. So you can write policies that say, you know, Jane has to review everything. And that's not automatable because yeah. there's not so many Janes. But we write policies that are highly automatable and can take in data in context and spit out an answer. So that's our automate phase. And then there's some things that we, you, know, you get to a certain point, there's a risk that we're you know, unsure of or whatever, and you need to pop out and a human needs to, you know, yeah. a lawyer needs to engage or a business person or something. And so we've gotten to the point now where uh, with integrations into our build systems and these automated policies and good data, we're at the point where about 99% or 99.7% of our open source usages are automatically detected and automatically flow through our policy engines with no humans whatsoever. So this, if I'm a developer and I wanted to use whatever, you know, some NPM package or some NuGet yeah. package, I just do it? Just do it. And then the build system will scrutinize The build system whatever. figures it out and, and detects it and then runs it through our policy engine, all in like real time, I'll say, like yeah, at build time. Build time yeah. And what comes out of it, we've moved away from sort of a request and approve model, because that's sort of a, a pessimistic, yeah. right? yeah. to much more of a, a register and review model. So you, it just gets registered. We take note of the fact that you've got it, that you're using that open source, what version, et cetera, mm -hmm. and, and try to figure out the scenario, like what product is it going into, is it a dev dependency, all that sort of stuff. And then run it through the policy engine, and it comes out and says either you need to answer some more questions and get a review, or you know, you're good to go. Yeah, and would it break the build? I mean, if it didn't get a full bill of health, you know, would... Uh like I'd find out because you emailed me out of band or is it like my system will stop working? There's lots of different dimensions to that and teams can dial the knob sort of where they want. So we can technically break the build. Typically we don't. We couldn't do that in like sort of a central way because teams are all different points in their shipping and some risks are tolerable yeah. and you know all that sort of thing. So we don't want to just sort of a vulnerability come into our database and suddenly everybody's build breaks and they can't ship anything. Yeah. You know, that's really disruptive. So... We tend not to do that. You get in-experience warnings, so build warnings, build errors, that sort of thing. You also get alerts in the services that we offer, like in our Git services. Yep. But we've also shifted left, if you will, <laughs> uh, all the way to the point where you get the warnings in VS Code. You know, so if you're taking a dependency on something that has a vulnerability, you get little red squigglies in VS Code that tell you about that. But we've also gone you know, further left and into the browser where when you're browsing npm or uh, npmjs.com or nuget.org or whatnot, mm -hmm. you get a big red box if there's a vulnerability on that thing. And that's a Microsoft-specific data set that's feeding that and will give you information about vulnerabilities or you know, license issues or, or whatnot so that right when you're choosing the component, you can choose wisely. And this is like a, an extension? Yeah. So something yeah, that's just, but extensions. it's installed by default on all sort of... Uh, it's optional okay. uh, right now. But uh, yeah, it's available to everybody and it's got pretty wide usage. It sounds like you've done this combination of, you know, like 
you've built a lot, right? You sort of you embedded a lot into those process. What's your criteria indeed around like you know you have a bunch of these tooling? When do you choose to sort of invest your own development resources and, and build those components versus take you know off the shelf software? That's a really good question. You know, if you pan back sort of four or five years ago when we first started down this path, mm-hmm. we were starting from a very traditional workflow that was almost inherently point and click for users, right? And so there was no way that it was going to scale. And there wasn't really much available at the time that was going to scale. So we found that the combination of that and a bunch of the quirkinesses of the Microsoft code bases and engineering systems, that there weren't a lot of tools that we would be able to integrate with. They simply weren't available. So we headed down a path of building pretty much everything. You know, could we have done that differently? Maybe, I'm not sure. And there's been a lot of good advances in tools out there now. And, and some of the things that we've got internally, we are you know, thinking about, could we make that a product? Should we make that a product? We'll see how that unfolds. Yeah. Uh, or, and, and many of the things we're doing, we open source as well. So in terms of my team, we've got a number of different elements out there that we've actually just made open source because they're not going to ever be a product per yeah. se. Yeah, and there's something, there's some uh, good karma element of it when you're sort of consuming, <laughs> you know, like generally speaking, you should be open sourcing stuff, but specifically when you, know, you deal it, with the consumption of open source, there's something extra right about uh, open yeah. sourcing that. And, and the irony of the open source programs office, you know, not open sourcing things was not lost on us. So, indeed. So we indeed try to, to open source as much as we can, but some things we can't. So Let's let's dig into that a little sure. bit, you know, so let's talk, you know, like you teed up, you said there's a bunch of these deals that you have or that you are open sourcing. Do you want to Talk about some specific Oh, ones. I mean, most of those are not security related, but th- things like you know, managing our presence on GitHub. We've got tens of thousands of developers and repos on GitHub and trying to cross hundred orgs and stuff like that. And managing all of that is a real challenge, just trying to keep all the cats in line and, and yeah. uh, you know, take care of all of that. Everything from that to also like monitoring GitHub. We've written a few things that harvest data from the APIs and that sort of thing and give us a good perspective on what our devs are doing what the community is doing, how the projects are working, all those sorts of things. So a lot of stuff in that space is, is where we've been driving. I've got a project that we started called Clearly Defined that uh, is trying to crowdsource licensed metadata because that turns out to be a real big problem. And there's potentially some security angles on that. Yeah, we can dig into that, I think, in general around community because we're going to sort of shift from that a bit right. later on. But you know what, let's talk about the, you know, what this is at the end of the day, you know, we're talking about the secure developer into the, yeah. the vulnerability handling aspect sure. of the process. So sure. things kind of, you know, kind of walked us through a little bit, you know, the system and you have those components. What happens when a new vulnerability gets disclosed? You know, what's the sort of alarm bell? Uh, it's something going? we're already using, you mean? Or? Exactly. Yeah. You know, there's like some new struts vulnerability or the right. equivalent, you know, that struts is our poster boy these days for, uh, <laughs> for something getting vulnerable. But yeah. What happens next? So, I mean, there's really two scenarios that we see there. One is it's in something that's shipped already ready and isn't really being built again. You know, it, it shipped last month or whatever, and maybe the team has moved on to a new branch or, yeah. or you know, a new next release or something. And then there's stuff that's actively being developed, right? So most of our tooling is integrated at the build time. So I, I mentioned the shift left stuff, you know, for people who are browsing yeah. and looking for things. So that's when you're doing active development, that's a, an idea that, that will prevent you from getting the vulnerabilities into your code in the first place. But in this case, we've already taken a dependency on you know, Foo version one, yeah. and then some new vulnerability in Foo has uh, been discovered. So if it's being built, we'll get the alert either way because the build has already happened and we know that Foo version one is there. Okay, so for starters, you track that. Sort yeah, of we, we, as soon as we see it in the build, we track that yep. in a system and it's tracking millions of different use sites across the company's code base. 
So as soon as we see that, we end up with an alert being raised in the engineering system. By alert there, I mean like that's a user visible you know, banner across their UI if they're going and looking at the website in Azure DevOps. And most of what we do is in Azure DevOps because mm-hmm. go figure, we, we sell these products, right? Indeed. So yeah. we yeah. use them too. It's good dog footing, yeah. Uh, so it's integrated into Azure DevOps. But we also have facilities for you know emailing and getting reports. And you as an individual can go to this dashboard and it's personalized to every individual that go and see like what are all of the vulnerabilities in any repo that I'm responsible for. And so you can just go and click on that link and it shows you, oh, there are seven vulnerabilities with these criticalities or severities and, you know, here's the repos they're in and that sort of thing. Yeah. And from an ownership perspective, like kind of whose responsibility is that? Is it on the dev team to kind of go, like you provide them that portal, you know, it's kind of their responsibility? Is it the security team that's trying to... Push it, is it yourself? That's a good like, question. So yeah, I actually skipped over that part. So when we get a new vulnerability, it really depends on the severity, right? All that happens regardless, mm-hmm. right? You get the, the alerts and all that sort of thing. If it's a high severity vulnerability, then we have a whole part of the company that exists independent of open source. That's yeah. the, the Microsoft Response Center, uh, the Security Response Center. And they will engage on the high severity things to... And, and severity has a number of different dimensions. Uh, some particular to the actual vulnerability, some to the business case and you know what mm-hmm. product is it and stuff like that. But they will engage in the higher severity levels and drive a whole incident response process where you know there might be hotlines set up and we're yeah. you know figuring out which customers have it or which data centers have it. All yeah. that sort of muscle gets invoked pretty much, I won't say automatically, but that's a very practiced yeah. process at the company. Yeah. If it doesn't fall into that category then we do have a set of standards in our development process that talk about vulnerabilities and like an SLA around them being fixed. And Mm -hmm. it does go back to the dev teams. They are made aware through the notifications and alerts and whatnot that they have these vulnerabilities and then they have a time period to address them. Mm-hmm. And various dashboarding and reporting things help them help See them stay in the SLAs. Methods the SLAs or not? Okay, yeah. cool. So like the different levels are, you know, one set of security components are about you know active development. When you add a component that has some security problem or license problem for that matter, then it would it would flag. You'd get notified. You know, you'd engage. That's when you added it. Second is when a new vulnerability gets disclosed. Right. If it's a high severity, it goes to the security incident response team, and they. Make a determination, you know, based on whatever information available to them, if they like, you yep. know, sound the alarm or, or not. Mm-hmm. And then, kind of the health element of doing that as a long-term bid comes down to that sort of SLA definition of sure. You know, and, and like I say, for the lower severity things, you know, that's just business as usual for the development teams. They're, you know, they, we've always independent again of sort of open source and that yeah. they've always had this sort of heartbeat or, backup, or drumbeat yeah. of there's a vulnerability in something you're shipping or yeah. building. You've got to go and deal with it. So it's it's almost business as usual. It's just like the volume goes up because we're using so much other code that the team themselves didn't write. Yeah, you sort of you own more code than you're actually able to write. Exactly, yeah, uh, absolutely. That's the wonder of open source, source, right? Indeed. Yeah. Cool, so so let's shift gears a little bit. So this is, uh, you know, thanks for that. This sort of outlines the way that you manage, right? And you sort of control open source. Mm-hmm. You deal a lot, you know, you open source yourself and you you work a lot with the, with the providers, right? Like with the maintainers, with the people that are sort of writing open source sure. themselves. How do you find those? Like, are there projects you're sort of more happy, <laughs> you know, to use or not? You know, what makes you happy in an open source project that you that you see? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it varies quite a bit, you know, from ecosystem to ecosystem and that sort of thing. And there are certainly ecosystems where there's more trust, 
you know, because they've shown historically that they're much more attuned to security issues and that sort of thing. So we're, you know, feel more confident about that. Generally speaking, when somebody's choosing to use an open source component, you know, we look at individuals, devs at their desktop, mm-hmm. go and look at, at various aspects of it. And we hope we try to guide them to look at security things, mm-hmm. security related topics. And to hopefully a large extent they do. But the, the interesting thing, like producers, and we produce a lot of open source ourselves, so we're in the same yeah. boat. Yeah. There's some simple things that help folks understand what's going on from a security point of view. And it, it can be anything as simple as uh, you know, having a clear statement about how to report security issues. Mm-hmm. And that signals a bunch of things, right? One, obviously, it tells you how to report security issues. But the other is it tells you that, oh, this project thinks about security. Mm-hmm. They understand that security is a topic and that they have put in place a process. And it might be through their, their umbrella foundation. They might have done it just themselves on their own. Mm-hmm. Either way, I, I feel more confident now as a consumer and somebody who's looking to engage with that project that I can talk about security issues with them. I have a yep. means of doing that and that they're receptive to it. Yeah, we've actually observed in uh, our state of open source security, not from this year, but from the one last year that we've done, mm. we asked about, you know, do you have a disclosure policy? Yeah. And, and the statistics were very clear to show that if you have a disclosure policy, then you're actually more likely to get reports. And it was, you know, it sounds so obvious, but yeah. it's you know, like, you know, statistically verified yeah. that you will get more reports because you're guiding people about where to go. Yeah. And yeah. you're right around the sort of security consciousness, right? It's like you've taken a moment to think about security. Yeah. yeah. And in the interest of full disclosure to our listeners here, yeah. uh, you know, Microsoft has not done a great job in that regard. Like, yeah. where our, a lot of our repos don't have these kinds of disclosures on them. And that's one of the things that we're working on in the next few months. Yeah, well, is, no, uh, busy. Yeah. Getting all that stuff into shape and, yeah. and, and really clarifying for people how to engage. I love those. it. I think uh, a lot of the Apache projects I've actually yeah. observed have a good sort of yeah, security.md file. The Linux are, Foundation, there's a lot of really good, you know, sort of high quality projects out there that yeah. are, are very attuned to security issues. One of the other things we found that's kind of interesting is when you get these vulnerability reports in, oftentimes, you know, these days it's so easy to get like a thousand NPMs on your machine or in some Docker image or something like that, right? It's so easy to consume tons and tons of open source and the dependency graphs get really, really deep. Yeah. And so it's really easy to have a vulnerability in something that's 10 levels deep in your dependency graph and you've never heard of it because you, you know, you installed this thing at the top and it brought in this thing at the bottom. So one of the things that becomes interesting is uh, a lot of these vulnerabilities are things like uh, DOS vulnerabilities yeah. and, and that sort of stuff. And whether you're vulnerable to it or not is, is something you need to go and look at. So there's a couple of things there. One is uh, if you understand a little bit about the architecture of the project, if projects help people understand that, mm-hmm. you can sort of understand, oh, you know, simple statements like we don't take any regular expressions from outside. You know, our APIs have no regular expression surface area. Yeah. Then that whole class of vulnerabilities now is, is immaterial in general to that project. So you can know just because you're using something that has a vulnerability doesn't mean you're actually subject to that vulnerability. You typically have to use it in a vulnerable way. Like there's, there's almost no packages that we blacklist yep. that are just outright bad, right? It's only the ones like with malware or something in them yeah. that are outright yeah. bad. They're all based on how you use it. So projects having a, a little bit of a security-oriented architecture discussion is super useful because then as a consumer and somebody who's looking to engage in the project, I know, you know how data is being treated, how code is being executed. I can come and help find vulnerabilities. I can be more confident in my use of it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We, um, so it's Snake. You know, Snake is free for open source and all that. Not mm. to sort of make this a flag, but we have the ability to put a badge right. 
to say whether your dependencies are vulnerable and it always felt like almost counterintuitive for people to do it. I don't know, like, you know, we, we put it out there and weren't sure if people are going to do it or not. You know, at this point, there are many thousands of uh, repositories that put this badge that says how many vulnerabilities they have. And it feels almost like, you know, hey, you know, hold on, why are you advertising? But really what they're saying is, you know, we aim for that to be green right. and they can manage their vulnerabilities and state as much in their repositories. Yeah. So presumably when you consume such an open source project, then you're, you know, you're able to say, okay, like they have a bunch of these dependencies, but to, to the extent of their ability to assess whether they're vulnerable or not, mm-hmm. they've stated that they're not, right? They've sort of right. accepted their vulnerability. Right. But it's better off than, you know, being on your own. Well, and it comes back to that thing we were talking about a little bit earlier, where if you just have a description of your security policy, it it means that, oh, they think about security. You know, already, you've already got like half marks, right? It's an awesome state, way above a lot most of the other projects out there. So that you're already ahead of the game by doing that. So that's super useful. Cool. So those are two, you know, like, are there other sort of practices like security disclosure, you know, inform, I guess, on the uh, the way that you consume input, right? Or right. So, you know, what risk right. factors might apply to you? Yeah. Well, of course, proactively reporting your vulnerabilities. Uh, mm-hmm. My my understanding, I don't have the, the concrete stats, but my understanding is that the, the majority of vulnerabilities out there today are not in like the central databases and yeah, that sort of correct. thing. So yeah. they exist in some issue or pull request, and maybe they're not even called out explicitly. It's just you know the dev wouldn't fix the problem actually reporting those things and whether it's through the the standard you know CVEs and and whatnot or through some other way surfacing the fact that yeah you had a vulnerability doing it you know responsibly and respectfully yeah. but surfacing that there was a vulnerability in some version it's now fixed in some new version is also you know something that clearly helps with the problem and kind of back to our earlier discussion about dependencies and the badges and that sort of thing actually going and proactively knowing what your complete chain is. Like, what's your user's viewpoint? As yeah. a project producing a, a component, yeah. people are going to go and get it and they're going to do NPM install or whatever the verb is and they're going to get you know, 20, 30, 100 other things. Understanding the shape of that from a security point of view, from a licensing point of view, it's sort of like there's this term passive carrier or something that, that they use in, in diseases, right? It's a asymptomatic carrier. That's the term. Where, you know, you carry the disease, but you're not actually... So, so you could carry a vulnerability or a licensing yep. issue, but not in yourself. You're just going to subject all of your users to it. And so understanding what your users are going to get when they use you and what the security status of those projects are. And you know, a lot of times when we come across these deep vulnerabilities in deep dependencies, it becomes really hard for somebody to fix it. You might be able to go and get a new version of the thing that's vulnerable, but the thing that's consuming the thing that's vulnerable, yeah. you, know, you need to up it, and then it's a new version, and you need to up it, and you need to walk all the way up the chain or do some sort of patching you know, down to the low level. And there's some cool tools that do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we try to help in that space. Yeah, but, sure. but, but I, I agree with you, you know, this, uh, this notion of own, it, it almost comes back to own it's like yeah. as an open source maintainer, you chose yeah. to use some open source components. You need to show some modicum of of ownership, you know, for those components and understanding that you know you need to be tracking them and reporting them because for all intents and purposes, you are distributing that code yeah. and you don't want to be distributing vulnerabilities. So, yeah, and, and by no means am I trying to like offload all of the work onto the project team. Yeah. And stuff. Like we want to be able to come as a, as a large consumer of open source, we want to be able to engage and help teams become more and more secure. And you, know, you signaling that you're willing to do that is a good sign that you know, we're going to come yeah. and be able to help with that. So it's, it's an engagement, right? It's a bi-directional Almost collaboration. Like a <laughs> yeah. 
So I think you know all of those are great components, and I do think that there's more awareness. I would bet that you know there are more security.mds today than there were you know five years right. ago, right, or or, uh, or ten yep. years ago. So the conversation there. What other means? You know, you mentioned clearly defined mm. and those projects. Let's maybe talk a little bit about like maybe a more structured element of contributing or sort of sharing such knowledge. Yeah, so you know, I, I mentioned clearly defined yeah. earlier. Maybe give us the general overview yeah, as well the, on what this is. Yeah. Well, the, the current focus is on crowdsourcing license data. So the current focus mm-hmm. is not on security, but the, the general premise is there that we've got tools and, and capabilities that we can run and, and do automated work on open source components like in this case, finding licenses and copyright holders and whatnot, and put that out there for people to consume. And right now, it's very hard for people to, just like it's hard to figure out what vulnerabilities there are in a component, it's hard to figure out what licenses and copyright holders, et cetera, there are. So to comply with the licenses, that's hard. So we've tried to automate, put a bunch of tooling in place. The tooling's not perfect because, you know, humans are humans and tools are tools and we don't always get all the data, but we make that available for curation so people can come and update the values. If the license is wrong, they can come and fix it. And that gets reviewed like any open source contribution and subsequently gets merged into the definitions of open source components and hopefully upstreamed to the original components so that future versions are more clearly defined in, yep. in the way we say it. And that is done by the maintainers of clearly defined? Yeah, so there's a curator community that you know you can come and go to the you can go to clearlydefined.io and and see a component, you know, that you know and like or maybe you're the owner of that component and see that oh yeah, crap, you know, in version 1.3 we forgot to put the license in the package file. Yeah. And so you can go and fix it there. And then submit that as a pull request, and it's, it's all automated, so yeah. it's nicely done. And then the, the curator community will say, "Oh, that's really cool. We'll we'll merge that in, and that becomes part of the corpus of data." And then we want to upstream that back to the original project, so that version one point four, when the next one comes out, is yeah. is more clearly defined. So taking that, that's all licensing related, if taking that and trying to apply it in the security world, we have this notion of clearly secure, right? And it's very nascent. Like, I'd love for your listeners to help us figure out what that could or Mm. should be. So by all means, you know, come to the site and and there's a, you can join the Google group or whatever and and send us information about it. This is clearlydefined.io. Yeah, clearly defined, exactly, clearly defined.io. But what we're what we're thinking so far is, and again, very nascent, is, is simple things like many of the people we work with, including ourselves, have developed mappings from uh, component identities to the CV or CPE identity that's in the database. So it's not obvious to everybody, but it's not as easy as just going saying, I, yeah. I want to go to the database and see if Foo version one has a vulnerability. Right? You actually have to do work to figure that out. And so a lot of people have independently developed these mappings. And so well, why are we doing this independently? We're all in open source. Let's collaborate on that and have a, a central place right. where we can develop these things. And then, of course, like you know, upstreaming that, if you will, back into the databases and helping work with the database communities to make the data at source better. But then there are other things like we talked about the underreporting of vulnerabilities. So how can we make it easier for projects to report in a very simple way? Like you could totally imagine, you know, the hash vulnerability tag that gets put into your issue or something that that when you commit that that pull request that just gets automatically hoovered up by clearly defined and put into a database so now you can just subscribe to that feed of of vulnerabilities yeah. we do not want it to be a new vulnerability store i yeah. think we've got enough of those and we, we just want to make it easier for people to use and manage and integrate with the data that's out there as much as possible uh, i think there's a, a bunch of other ideas 
but I'd really love to hear from your listeners as yeah. to what they might. Well, that's a great call for action. What they might find you know, interesting. Those yeah. listening, you know, got some homework there. Go to clearlydefined.io. Yeah. I think one of the challenges you're going to have with secure versus defined might just be the sensitivity of the data because yeah. you know there's the vulnerability store, but there's also the uh, if you're going to make a security conscious uh, statement or security impacting statement about a project, you know, for license, there's no sure. there's no sensitivity aspect to it. You know, yeah. for for vulnerability, like for instance, what you wouldn't want is for somebody to come along and say, "Hey, you know, I found this vulnerability over here yeah. in this project. You yeah. know, let's just sort of add it to the list uh, when it hasn't been sort of properly disclosed." And but you know, all that said, you know, I, it sounds awesome. It sounds like there's definitely a lot of you know, at the very least, around sort of the metadata and the curation, but maybe even the security properties around what input puts come along, you know, what uh, yeah. all of those can very much be crowdsourced. The, the other area that's uh, actually, I think, super interesting is uh, more like assessment information. So a lot of the vulnerabilities that we see, they come in and they've been produced by security researchers and they're, they're great, they're super detailed, but it's like, line, you know, line 47 of file <laughs> foo.js or, or whatever, you know, has this construct and it's going to cause this problem and, and yeah. it's very detailed. From a consumer point of view, again, if you're like 10 levels up from that component, you've already lost them at the line number or whatever. Whatever, right? And so what's really interesting is to just sort of look and say, well, what better assessment information can we have? Like, how can I tell as a user if I am vulnerable? What are the characteristic usages that are vulnerable? And not just like this is a DOS attack. It's like if you call this function, right, with a third argument being this way, and then I can easily take that and go and ideally write some tools to do yeah. that or, or get some tools. But even if I have to do a manual sort of inspection, that's much easier to do than than trying to dissect it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I guess there's an interesting question there around the crowdsourcing bit of some of these things versus the technology bit, right? Mm. You know, should that information be gleaned by crowdsourcing the community, or should that information be gleaned through you know runtime observation of the data or or the likes? And yeah. maybe even then, there's like a crowdsourcing element of like contributing that data, you know, and, sure. uh, and making it available. Sure. Yeah. We, I mean, we have absolutely no desire to to get a bunch of people to do things. If we can tool it back to my mantra yeah, before yeah. about you know automate, right? If you can eliminate automate yeah. or you know yeah, delegate yeah. is the last one, right? Yeah. And that's where humans get involved. So uh, if you could do this in any automated way, seek to improve the tools. I mean, that's maybe another thing that happens in clearly secure is is uh, people helping to put together not so much, I don't I don't imagine it becoming a place where we develop security tools but security data aggregation tools or or you know something like that uh, could be very useful and interesting so Jeff, this has been a great conversation. You know, let yeah. me. But before I uh, let you off over here, I like to ask every guest that comes on mm -hmm. the show. You know, one last question, which is, you know, if you have one bit of advice or a pet peeve or something you want to tell a team that is looking to level up their security expertise, their security posture, you know, what's sort of the one thing you would advise that team to do? I mean, there's lots of different angles on that, but I'm going to take the, the angle of the group of people consuming open source. Okay. And it's really to engage. A lot of people still you know, think it's open source, I just take it, I use it, and, and that's it. Mm -hmm. But you really have to treat it like it's your code. Even if you're not going to write any of the, you know, even if mm -hmm. you don't know the language or whatever, you have to treat it like it's part of your system. And you do need to care about the security of it. You do need to engage with the producing teams, like the project teams, and say, like, you know, how can we make this together? How can we make this a, a secure project so that we can all consume it in a secure way? And I think there's just not enough people doing that. Uh, we see that across the board, basically. And uh, I think it would be a, a lot more sustainable and a lot more secure if more people were more deeply engaging 
with the projects that they consume. Yeah, no, that's an excellent tip. Yeah, yeah that's great. Well, Jeff, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Sure, thank you. And thanks everybody for tuning in and join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or get involved in this community, find us at thesecuredeveloper.com or on Twitter at thesecuredev. Visit heavybit.com to find additional episodes, full transcriptions, and other great podcasts. See you next time.